This episode contains the names of Aboriginal people who have since passed on. The gentle trickle of the fire, the festival-like feeling as the fire goes through the landscape and the insects run up the trees and the lizards are moving out of the way of the fire. The fires can be are a lot cooler and um, trickle through the landscape. Fires are a naturally occurring process in Australian landscapes. So, you know, like in, through uh, lightning strikes um, principally, but it also can occur for other reasons. Oliver Costello is a Bundjalung man and founding director of the Firesticks Alliance Indigenous Corporation. What he's describing is a cultural burn, a traditional method of environmental management which has been carried out by Aboriginal people across Australia for thousands of years. The old people sort of learnt to um, manage fire in a really positive way, the role of fire and, and how it interacted with different plants and animals and, and landscapes. In some ways, cultural burning is similar to hazard reduction burns. It reduces fuel load and hopefully prevents more intense and damaging fire down the track. But there are significant differences. Old people used to burn to clean up country and you know, you'd have a fuel reduction outcome, but it wasn't principally why they were doing it. They were doing it because they had a responsibility to look after the health of that land. And if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to survive. And because people in modern context don't really survive off those um, traditional bush resources, you know, they don't have to hunt and gather to survive. They don't have to make bones out of the bush. They don't have to survive um, outside of, you know, modern homes and roads and all that sort of stuff. Those relationships have changed. And so, you know, I guess the, the main thing is we're trying to do is not necessarily go back to living in the way the old people did, but understanding those value relationships. The way these fires burn, lower, slower and often set more frequently, means they have a different effect on the landscape than the hot, intense fires used by local agencies. You can get closer to the fire, you can get around the fire, you can move... Uh, through the fire more when it's cooler and um, moving slowly. It also means that the plants and animals are more resilient. So, you know, you, the plants, um, particularly the canopy, one of the principles for, you know, canopy forests for us is to keep the fire out of the canopy because the canopy is sacred. And then, yeah, for the animals, you know, the animals can, you know, insects and stuff can crawl up the trees, you know, koalas can, can climb up the you know, up into the canopy and get out of the intensity of the smoke and the heat. The idea is that um, a lot of systems are so dependent on, on fire for their regeneration, you know, whether it's sort of like a bit like pruning back, you know, things, the grass and the shrubs and stuff, sometimes they just need a bit of a prune. There's growing recognition of the benefits of cultural burning and government agencies have shown support for the practice to varying degrees. But there are huge barriers to widespread cultural burning that have been in place since colonisation. I'm Caitlin McHugh. This is Think Sustainability. A common description of cultural burns is of fire trickling through the landscape, like water, gentle, revitalising, certainly not dangerous. That's a world away from most people's experiences of fire in Australia, through either the acrid, hazy nuisance of hazard reduction burns blowing in from the bush, or the seasonal terror of bushfires. 
It's been another relentless day for firefighters and the emergency is far from over, with the number of fires increasing around the state. It's been a dramatic afternoon here at emergency headquarters. 8,000 people in entire township had urgently been asked to leave, to leave calmly, to pick up their kids literally from school, jump in the car, don't go home. Any residents still in those areas are being urged to enact their bushfire survival plan. Those who've left are warned it is too dangerous to return. It's the way we have come to fear fire and I've just been down to um, the mountain ash forest that burned outside Melbourne. This is Jacqueline Goth, a professor at the University of Technology Sydney's School of Design. She's worked with Firesticks to communicate the importance of cultural burning to government institutions and other stakeholders and in the process discovered a deeply ingrained fear of fire in Australian culture. I went there last year and I saw what had happened there and those, the mountain ash, those trees that were, you know, hundreds of years old have just been destroyed by that fire and the response around that has been to close off the area like a crime scene. It's an attitude that traces its roots to the first moments of colonisation, says Oliver. And even early on settlers found fire threatening, they, Aboriginal people were, you know, using fire very commonly and they used it to maintain them, but they also used it to, for warfare and for hunting and stuff like that. And so um, there's been a fear of fire in, you know, first settler, early contact, and that's flowed through today because, you know, you see these huge impacts of wildfires. Fire, according to official institutions, is something to be tightly controlled, restricted to the domain of highly qualified, government-endorsed experts. The way the agencies have built their frameworks, you have to be a firefighter to even be on a fire. So if you want to become, you know, if in the rural fire service, you know, I've been through it, you know, if you want to become a member, you've got to sign up, you've got to be accepted, then you've got to go and do training. They run the training a couple of times a year, um, and then you've got to get some, you know, experience and lots of stuff before they even let you go on a fire. Similarly in national parks and, and forestry and, all, and, and those other land management agencies, you know, you've, you've got to become an employee and then you've got to be do all the training then you've also got to do fitness and so you know the requirements to be able to be on a fire in New South Wales um, through the agency frameworks has been quite onerous. What this bureaucratic approach ignores is a long and shameful history of Australian government's attempts to eradicate Aboriginal cultural practices. Oliver points out that apart from being an effective tool in improving the health of the landscape, burning is a cultural practice and its suppression is a continuing example of colonialism. People, Aboriginal people actually have a right to do it under, you know, native title. Um, you know, if they're a native title holder, whether it's been recognised by the Crown or not, if, you know, if they, if they have a cultural connection to that land and they maintain the, their cultural practice and law, they actually have a right to burn. So being able to do that means that they need to be able to get a, around some of these agency processes that restrict them from doing it because it, otherwise they can't practice their law and culture. Apart from depriving Aboriginal people of their cultural practice, the often unbending rules around when, how and where burning can be carried out mean burns aren't always done as efficiently as they could be. You know, we've got to be home by five, we can't be out at night burning, um, when sometimes the best time to be burning is in the you know later afternoon and evening because it cools that fire down and slows it down. This is Peter Marie Stanley, a researcher at James Cook University, whose work focuses on cultural burning in North Queensland. 
it sometimes means that those windows where it's the perfect timing to put in a fire get missed because of, you know, the resources required, the paperwork required to actually sort of implement um, a hazard reduction burn or a conservation burn. Prescribed burns are carried out according to a strict timetable. This block of land at this time in this manner. Cultural burning, on the other hand, responds to cues in the environment, which tell practitioners when it's safe and desirable to burn. This responsiveness means cultural burning can adapt to the changing conditions brought about by a heating planet. You know, Indigenous people have lived through uh, a number of different major climate shifts um, and, you know, more and more archaeological works done and anthropological work, you know, um, Australia is learning about that continuity of connection. Being on country and being able to read those signs and those changes is probably more important now under the pressures that, you know, um, climate change is bringing. But reading country is really critically the key. And so, you know, as climate changes indicators shift um, and they may occur more than once in a year, but when you look at the landscape, it's telling you that it's ready for burning. The cooler, gentler fire used in cultural burning also means that over time, ecosystems become more diverse. Peter Marie saw this firsthand in her research. Over several years, she documented burning carried out by Cuckoo Taipan elders Dr Tommy George and Dr George Musgrave. So we had, you know, instead of one species of grass in the understory, we had four different species of grass in the understory. We didn't have bare ground between tussocks. Tussocks were interconnected and there was connectivity between them. Tussocks are clumps of grass, like you might see dotted around the ground on a bushwalk. And then that allowed sort of the right environment for the um, forbs and legumes and flowers and things like that to grow back through um, those systems. The changes Peter Marie documented in her work weren't immediate. She says it took around five years for the ecosystem to reset itself. And to an outside observer, might not have been incredibly dramatic. But diversity has knock-on effects for the entire ecosystem. You know, it is major in terms of species diversity and then obviously what relies on those species as well that come into that system that um, perhaps once we just had, you know, moved on and found other places in the landscape. To an extent, the government is recognising both the environmental and cultural benefits of permitting the practice. The New South Wales Biodiversity Conservation Act prohibits burning, but makes exemptions for cultural activities. In May 2018, a burning was carried out by traditional owners on Arakul country, around Byron Bay, with the support of the National Parks and Wildlife Service. It was an encouraging step towards more collaboration between traditional owners and government organisations. And, says Oliver, it highlights the complex relationship the Australian landscape has with fire. I was just at, um, on Arakul country the other week um, with one of the uncles there and he was talking about, you know, the, one of the, the orchids that's on the clay heath. You know, and these orchids only exist there. And, the, you know, and the, the heath, the clay heath, it's only a small area of that landscape. And fire is... It's key, a key part of that story. If you don't burn that clay heath every so often, um, the clay heath won't exist and that orchid won't exist. The Firesticks Alliance, of which Oliver is a director, holds a national Indigenous fire workshop on country every year. 
as part of its mission to spread knowledge of cultural burning. As well as passing on cultural knowledge, Firesticks works to develop relationships with the organisations that regulate land management, and they're making headway. We, we can see, I guess, there's a whole heap of um, environmental regulation, which, you know, the intention is good, but the application is often um, misguided. We are getting somewhere. We've been able to build some really good relationships with, you know, at different levels of, of um, government, environmental and sort of um, local government and parks and rural fire, sort of forest corp, you know, groups around, you know, being able to sort of support that cultural activity to occur and be a look at ways through their environmental or their risk management planning or alternative pathways. Um, and so, you know, I think we are looking good for the future. But he cautions against simply replacing one set of regulations with another. This is the challenge around working with government is that often what they say is, oh, this regulation doesn't work, let's impose another one. And I guess we're really apprehensive about government imposing regulation on, on Aboriginal practice because Aboriginal practice should be regulated by people with cultural authority and most of the agencies don't recognise cultural authority. Even without present-day institutional barriers, there's the legacy left by colonialism. When knowledge is suppressed, it can't be passed on. The Firesticks Network seeks to spread understanding of cultural burning between different groups to bridge these gaps in knowledge. To be able to burn, you need to know a bit about who you are and you need to know a bit about your relationships to country and, and to communities because that means you know who to talk to and that means you understand the values. And traditionally it happened, it was, you know, from as soon as you could crawl and walk, you were learning who your family was and where your country was and what you were eating and what your totems were and you were learning all about your cultural identity and your roles and relationships to country and your community. Uh, a lot of people have lost, you know, myself, a lot of people have lost access to a lot of that because they're living in a modern society and, you know, like there's been a lot of dispossession and, you know, stolen generations. I was fortunate to grow up uh, knowing I'm Aboriginal when I could easily not being seen as Aboriginal and, and so that's what we try and support people to come back to is like I guess knowing a bit about who they are, how they fit in and how they can, what role can they play in their cultural fire story. And even in cases where Aboriginal people no longer have first-hand knowledge of burning, they can learn by doing. It's a massive landscape out there and there's a lot of areas to manage and I believe that there should be space for Indigenous people to actually practice that knowledge and also reconnect with that knowledge. Um, you know, obviously it's no secret through colonisation people have been removed from the landscape and often people have a perception, non-Indigenous people, that knowledge is so fragmented that it can never be relearned. and the landscape is a teacher. So the more that people are able to be out on country, um, practising their culture, relearning languages, then the landscape is teaching them and reconnecting them with that cultural knowledge that was um, embedded and is still embedded on, on this landscape. So cultural burning shows promise, both as a tool to manage the environment and in recovering traditional Aboriginal practices. But colonialism continues today, with traditional practices restricted to small pockets of government-approved activity. Oliver says what's needed is agency for Aboriginal people to continue traditional practices on their terms, on their land. So it's so important that we um, rebuild those knowledge frameworks and we remember that, you know, at one point the old people didn't know and then they did and they, they knew because they learned. They knew because they observed, they shared knowledge. And so the same processes that existed, you know, for thousands of years where old people 
built these knowledge systems and implemented them, they still have, we still have the same opportunity today. And that's really, I guess, why we're seeing this really strong growth is because we're understanding these principles. We're not just going, oh, that knowledge is gone or that, you know, that this has happened now. It's like, no, saying no. There's a way forward. It's the same way that we've always had. And it's about respect. It's about recognition. It's about responsibility. You know, it's about actually taking on those processes that old people took on and, and, and taking them on in a, in a new way because we have got new challenges now. There, there is changing landscapes, you know, whether it's because of climate or because of urbanisation or whatever it is, there's things that are changing, but we can still apply those same principles to adapt to that change and make sure that we're doing the right thing as best we can by country. You've been listening to Think Sustainability, which is made in the studios of 2SER with the support of the Institute for Sustainable Futures. This show is made on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.